Part three, section three of the trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part three, section three. Sergeant Peterson had droned his last and had been succeeded on the stand by Trooper Curtis, brisk and dry with his plaster casts and fingerprints. Both men, Edith Nolan understood, were competent, honest, not deliberately wasting time. Hunter himself was not really unduly slow at this business of hammering home what was already clear and established. Callista had been there. The fingerprint evidence at Shanesville was quite negative. No prints except Anne's on handbag or key case, none but hers and jim's on the pontiac or the doherty's front porch all right and so what it was half past three before hunter and curtis were solemnly finished with that apparent futility it had never occurred to edith that any part of this ordeal could be a bore but it was then in a brief cross-examination Warner brought out the fact that a police search of the grove between the pond and Walton Road had produced nothing at all. It could not matter. Curtis and Peterson had both acted rather pleased with their casts and photographs of the Volkswagen's tire marks on the shoulder of Walton Road. They liked things complete, well-wrapped. But it couldn't matter, for in her statement to District Attorney Lamson, Callista had admitted taking the Volkswagen first into the Doherty's driveway, following the footpath, seeing Anne's body in the pond. She had admitted leaving then, driving around to Walton Road, parking there out of sight of her mother's house. And the prosecution would surely not trouble to deny or even question Callista's story of what happened then, in that half hour. She had stumbled off into the thick second-growth woods on the other side of Walton Road, a tangle of saplings, briars, poison ivy, wiry bushes, and young locust trees thorny in the dark, to get through a miscarriage in secret, like a wounded animal, and have done with it. To Edith, on the first occasion when, with Warner's help, Edith had broken through the barriers and won a visit with Callista in the detention cell, Callista had said tersely, in haste to change the subject, "'The brambles were the worst of it.' And that visit was not a time when she would accept any word of consolation. Something held back, Edith knew, some private tormenting reason why, even to her, Callista could not speak freely about that agony in the woods later maybe everything now must be qualified with such words later some time after all this is over cal and you are free curtis was gone something smart and bright-eyed was down there swearing to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth your full name and occupation sir sutherland r clip I owned and managed Clip's garage on Duke Street, uptown. You know, repairs, gas, bodywork. Matter of fact, we do everything. You'd be surprised. 
In startling disgust, Edith thought, Everything? How lovely for you, Mr. Clip. With the utmost geniality, Mr. Clip went on to testify that on the evening of Sunday, August 16th, he had been driving home to Winchester by Walton Road, after delivering a 1956 Buick, in the nicest condition you could imagine, to a customer in Emmettville. He wanted to emphasize that the Buick was a dish, in spite of, well, low mileage. He had practically robbed himself, but that was his way. The customer came first, and it paid off. Oh, yes. He had been watching the time that evening because he had to pick up his wife after a church supper. Got talking with that, completely satisfied, Emmettville client. And besides, the car he'd taken, in exchange, was kind of a sad heap that wouldn't safely do anything over forty. And you know how women are if you keep them waiting. Not that she... Yes, he had passed the junction of Summer Avenue and Walton Road between 9.10 and 9.15, no later. He had seen a maroon Volkswagen parked under the pines, not too well off the road either. Careless parking. One reason why he'd noticed it, although he always did notice them cheap foreign cars, which weren't too bad if all you wanted was economical transportation. Like, however... What? No, there wasn't anybody in the Volks, or near it, unless somebody was crouched down back of the dashboard when his headlights got there. But you couldn't hardly do anything like that in them foreign cheapies. Your witness, Mr. Warner. Mr. Clipp's hurt, astonished look inquired, Is that all? Without rising, Warner asked, you do front-end alignment? Well, no, sir. That calls for pretty tricky machinery. Still, the way we're growing all the time... Interior finish? No, sir. That's mostly factory. Of course, in a pinch... Edith heard Hunter begin snarling. What possible bearing... None, sir. I just wanted to make sure Mr. Clip hadn't left out anything. No further questions. During the short courtroom roar, checked by the gavel, Edith thought she could read exasperated forgiveness in the face of Judge Terence Mann. But foreman Peter Anson, she saw, was not amused, nor Hoag, nor Francis Fielding. Business is serious. To make fun of a man when he's advertising is something like interrupting him in the men's room. State Trooper Carlo San Giorgio, solemn, deceptively fresh-faced and young, followed Mr. Clip. He had stopped a blue-and-white Pontiac, license J.D. 1081, on Walton Road, two miles beyond the city line, at 8.34 p.m., Sunday, August 16th. The driver was a young woman who gave her name as Mrs. James Doherty which agreed with her driver's license. Her driving had been unsteady, with some wavering over the white line. Was she driving fast, exceeding the limit? No, sir, rather slow, just unsteady. 
Did she seem in good command of herself when you spoke to her? Yes, but I did ask if she'd been drinking a little. Was her response satisfactory to you as a police officer? Well, yes, sir, it was. Did you notice any smell of alcohol on her breath? A trifle, San Giorgio fidgeted. Just barely noticeable. But according to your observation, she wasn't what you'd call drunk, is that right? No, sir, she certainly wasn't. Spoke coherently, understood what I said, real polite and, and nice. Did anything in her appearance suggest she might be ill? She was slightly hoarse. I'd stopped her car where there was a pretty good light from a house across the road, and I thought her eyes looked rather lightly inflamed, enough to suggest she might be, oh, perhaps coming down with a cold. You understand, sir, these were very slight things. Otherwise I couldn't have let her drive on. Back of all that, Edith knew, back of the hedging, the slowly chosen words, back of Hunter's questions, blunted by the hearsay rule, was the thing that San Giorgio knew and keenly remembered and could not say. Warner's dark eyes had narrowed to cold watchfulness, and Judge Mann's pencil was still. There wasn't any hearsay rule in Mr. Lamson's office. But here in the arena, Carlo San Giorgio couldn't say, She said she'd had one little shot of brandy, and I said, Oh, well, miss, I guess we won't throw the book at you for that. Last night at dinner, Cecil Warner had done some thinking out loud about Trooper San Giorgio, who would have in his own young mind no reasonable doubt. San Giorgio could not repeat Anne's words on the stand. And yet if he could, the old man said, it ought, if juries were logical, to make no essential difference. For there was no defense, he said, except a reasonable doubt as to criminal intent. Reasonable doubt, he said, and set down his glass because his fat hand was shaking. You see it, Red? T.J. can say that criminal intent and premeditation are proved up to the hilt by the mere presence of the poison in Cal's apartment. He will. He'll rub their noses in it. Against that and a flock of other circumstantial facts, we've got just one fact, the fact of something that happened in Cal's mind. Is it a fact? You and I both know it, don't we? She had no intent to kill but instead of answering directly, the old man had said, Red, do you understand she's not certain of it herself? Edith had not quite understood it until then. Did you give her a ticket, Trooper? No, sir. From the address on her driving license, I knew she had only about a mile to go. I told her she'd better head straight for home, and I told her I'd follow along behind till she got there, which I did. The youth was reliving it, Edith saw, and perhaps painfully. A pretty girl, hot night and hazy moon, had he hoped to be invited into the house for a quick check on burglars and a little drink? 
Oh, probably not. Anne had carried an obvious flag of conventional virtue. San Giorgio would have recognized and respected it, and done no more than a bit of summer's night dreaming. You drove behind her car as far as the house on Summer Avenue? I did, sir. I saw her turn in at the driveway, and since she made it all right, I drove on. Did you note the time? Yes, sir, 8.43. Mr. Warner? No questions. Later last night, up at her studio, watching the fire in the grate through the prism of his wine glass, the old man said, who started the legend that the law court is a place devoted to search for truth? Answer, lawyers, of course. But not counsel for the defense, Red. We know our function is to persuade. The prosecution may fool itself now and then, and kick the word truth around. We can't afford to. Edith had said flatly, The system stinks. He wasn't startled. He only grumbled. I agree. The adversary system stinks. But working inside of it, my own position has logic enough to satisfy me. I get it out of a hypothesis, Red. Not abstract truth, but working hypothesis. I say a human being once born has a right to live, if the word right is going to mean anything or, let's say, a right not to be murdered, judiciously or any other way. In other words, I'd defend Cal if I thought she was guilty as hell. Crew-cut gray hair and dignity marched to the stand, the face under the gray brush unknown to Edith, but carrying a nearly unmistakable professional stamp. This would be bad. Look towards me, Cal. I'll wear this old green suit tomorrow, too. Arthur J. Devins, M.D. Look toward me. But telepathy is like other kinds of magic, she knew. Fun to play with as a notion. If it worked, we'd run screaming. A.B., Columbia, 1930. M.D. from College of Physicians and Surgeons. And maybe soon, another century or so, there will be no such thing as privacy on earth except in the dark center of a few minds not quite overwhelmed. The desert shall blossom like the rose. Distilled seawater, atomic power pumps, sure, nothing to it. But no room for roses. And no hiding place. Active as coroner's physician for Winchester County, New Essex, since 1952. But, friend, if something happens inside the mind I don't know, to make you remember me, to turn your head toward me, I will smile. I'll say with my lips, we're going to win. Preliminary examination made on the scene. The body was that of a young white woman in the middle twenties, of slight build, height five feet two. Rigor was complete, a light reddish post-mortem lividity noticeable, the face not markedly cyanotic, 
a moderate quantity of white cohesive foam adhered to nose and mouth the hands though stiffened in rigor were not clenched as one often finds them in drowning cases the conjunctivae were congested cutis anserina goose flesh was pronounced on the thighs and upper arms goose flesh said dr devens politely and patiently to the jury is frequently evident after death by drowning if the water is far enough below body temperature as it ordinarily is even in the tropics to sum up that preliminary superficial examination it suggested but did not prove that death had occurred with less struggle than is usual in a drowning it did prove that life was not extinct when the body entered the water there was at least some breathing possibly the shallow breathing of unconsciousness but enough inhaling and exhaling and choking reflex to cause that foam doctor a hypothetical question if a person were stunned i mean knocked entirely unconscious before falling or being thrown into the water and then perished by drowning would you expect to find the body after twelve to thirteen hours of submersion more or less in the condition of mrs doherty's at the time you made that first examination edith saw callista start as if struck in the face her dark brows gathered in that thick frown of hers and she was leaning to cecil warner whispering she looked edith thought more disgusted than angry cecil's poker face remained in control he only listened shook his head patted her hand oh hypothetical well i dare say the findings wouldn't be inconsistent of course mr hunter i looked for any sign of head injury a matter of routine and found nothing of the kind isn't it possible doctor to receive a head injury perhaps from a padded thing like a sandbag that wouldn't leave any marks no superficial marks maybe i think you'd find post-mortem evidence likely subdural hemorrhage even from a blow that merely stunned with some acid and faraway amusement dr devens remarked even as coroner's physician i'm not too versed in the lore of sandbags but i think that a blow heavy enough to stun followed very soon by death from another cause would leave some internal evidence did you look for such evidence i did is that standard procedure by the way when there's convincing evidence of drowning i can't say that i lean very much on standard procedure so far as i'm concerned any case that reaches the coroner's office is unique when there's any possibility of homicide i try to think of everything including the apparently far-fetched yes i examined the head cranial section well i don't suppose you want those details head neck vertebrae all perfectly normal uninjured in fact the one and only injury on the entire body surface 
was a trifling abrasion on the right ankle bone which could have been caused in any number of ways a fall or the ankle bone scraping against something impossible to say i also examined the palms for earth marks such as she might have got if she'd fallen forward and tried to break the fall with her hands there weren't any but i dare say several hours immersion would have removed them if they were ever there the skin of the palms was perfectly clear i see go on please the body was placed in the mortuary wagon from shanesville and at my suggestion was taken to the winchester morgue i accompanied it there it was at no time out of my sight i began the post-mortem at about one thirty p m assisted by dr miles dennison and with the authorization of mr district attorney lamson i think i should say at this point that shortly before i began the post-mortem i was notified by winchester chief of police morgan collins that there was a possibility mrs doherty had drunk poison thought to be aconitine i therefore had this in mind before beginning the examination and i consulted by telephone with the toxicologist dr warren ginsburg and prepared the organs blood samples and so on that he told me he would need for his study the body weight was one hundred and ten pounds slightly undernourished there was an apodectomy scar old no other scars no evidence of chronic illness or disorder no marks of violence the subject had never given birth the nasal cavities and bronchi contained some stiff foam and a few dark brown and black specks identified by microscopic examination as fragments of dead leaves no algae were found some water was in the lungs but very little the heart not markedly distended contained fluid blood but that is not diagnostic clotted blood may appear in a drowning case the viscera were quite noticeably congested that is diagnostic congestion of the viscera no sir may appear in many other conditions including some kinds of poisoning yes mr hunter for example poisoning by aconitine yes did you employ the gettler test yes inconclusive the blood in the left side of the heart had a slightly lower concentration of sodium chloride than the blood on the right if that difference had been pronounced you could call it fair evidence of inhalation of fresh water but it was too slight i don't attach any significance to it could the lack of a positive finding be significant i don't think so it's a good test but plenty of things may confuse it for instance a drowning may occur from pharyngeal shock a spasmodic throat contraction that causes asphyxia before much water is inhaled logically still a drowning death but no water to speak of so there goes your gettler test 
You looked, of course, for evidence of aconitine poisoning? Only a limited sense, sir. Aconitine doesn't leave gross traces for post-mortem. It's a job for the toxicologist, a chemical job. Since I knew Dr. Ginsburg would be working on it, I simply bore it in mind, prepared what he needed, and kept my eyes open. I can say under oath that I found nothing inconsistent with aconite poisoning having occurred shortly before the drowning. But the actual immediate cause of death was, in my opinion, asphyxia due to immersion, in other words, drowning. Doctor, will you give the jury a description of the effects of aconitine in a lethal or near-lethal dose? Frankly, sir, I'll be drawing on textbook knowledge, because this is the only case I ever encountered. Homicide by aconite is decidedly rare. So is suicide. Callista looked up, not to the doctor who dutifully faced the jury and would not look at her, but searching the rows of spectators. Aconitine will cause numbness, tingling in the mouth, also in the fingers, possibly cramps in arms and legs. There's marked salivation, nausea, burning sensation in stomach and throat. Edith moved in her seat and smiled and tried to call in silence, I'm here. But Callista's eyes, searching, immense, drowned, passed over her. A slow, irregular, weak pulse is characteristic, with rapid, shallow breathing, muscular weakness, a general collapse. Nausea and vomiting are usual. Sometimes there are convulsions. The poison depresses the medullary centers of the brain but the cerebrum is hardly affected, which means the mind stays pretty clear until the coma that may supervene at the end. Callista's eyes found what they were seeking. It would not be her mother, Edith knew. Victoria Chalmers sat over at Edith's left. Those symptoms I've described begin soon after aconite is taken. I believe death, when it occurs, usually comes in about four hours, but it can happen in a matter of minutes. Edith wished not to turn her head. She felt instead an unwillingness, distaste, reluctance to learn what would be written in the face of Jim Doherty. But she could not help it. Knowing where he was seated, she was forced to turn, until a sidelong look gave her the image of him, completing at that instant the sign of the cross, his eyes lowered, his lips moving. But the man beside him was watchful, interested, attentive, probably missing none of the testimony. What is the minimum lethal dose, Dr. Devins? About a milligram. Some individuals might take up to five or six and recover. More than six milligrams would likely finish anyone, unless there was immediate medical attention. You understand, those figures refer to a pure concentration of the drug. Callista's lips were moving also. As Edith looked to her again, 
she saw them shape unmistakable words, "'Go away!' There would be no sound, Edith thought, even for Cecil Warner, who had taken hold of her hand and was showing the beginning of alarm. "'Go away!' "'Is the drug readily soluble in alcohol?' "'Yes, Mr. Hunter.' "'Callista, be quiet. He can't hear you. He can't hear anyone.' "'Assuming a person had taken four to five milligrams of the poison, Dr. Devens, he could still be saved by immediate medical attention?' The girl said something to Cecil Warner quick and possibly sharp. Edith caught the faint note of her voice under the dry dominating noise of Dr. Devens, the words indistinguishable, blotted out by his, "'Certainly, sir. The patient could probably be saved. Stomach pump. Tannic acid, I imagine, to render the poison inert. You'd give heart stimulants, say digitalis, a healthy patient would have a pretty good chance. Thank you, Dr. Devens. Cross-examination, Mr. Warner? No cross-examination. But Warner was up, for once urgently quick-spoken. Your Honor, in view of my client's exhaustion, may we have adjournment at this time? In the abrupt hush that followed Warner's question, Callista's voice, not loud, not really a cry, was surely heard by everyone, even by Jim Doherty. "'Go away, my love!' The judge winced, speaking hastily. "'The court stands adjourned until 10 a.m. tomorrow.' Edith also observed the press tables and the jolly excited scramble for the telephones. End of Part 3, Section 3 Recording by Roger Moline